Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Today, we'll be continuing to talk about the impact of financial changes on the future of mining, and in particular, exploring how changes in mining finance, and venture capital in particular, are stimulating much-needed innovation. Joining me as my co-host today, I have Peter Bryant, a widely recognized digital transformation and sustainability thought leader and serial entrepreneur, with a special focus on the intersection of venture capital and natural resource innovation. Peter is an advisory board member at venture capital firms Chrysalix and Fundamental, managing partner of Clario, as well as being co-founder and board chair of the Development Partner Institute. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Liz. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Super to have you on the show. Yeah, good to be here. <laughs> so before we start, I want to ask you, what first drew you to the mining industry? Well, Liz, that's a very interesting question, actually. Uh, it's kind of probably accidental. I actually was, I was in the software industry for 25 to 30 years. Uh, and I first came across the mining industry actually in the mid-80s with Matt Iser Mines, Hammersley Iron, Cliff Road River, which are all names of the past. And then I really never had much exposure to them until I came to the U.S., and started up uh, strategy consulting 16 years ago. And Rio Tinto approached me as part of the industry leadership program, which I was involved with for five years under Sam Walsh's leadership at Rio Tinto. I know, and that brought me right back into the mining industry and have been inside the center of it ever since. And the rest is history. The rest is history, <laughs> yep. And history still being made. Awesome. And so through that time, you've continued to work a lot on strategy and innovation. And, and that's really what I want to talk about today with you. So now, Innovation is this really trendy subject these days, and we know the world needs to be doing an awful lot more of it, especially as we enter this age of exponential change uh, from technology to the need for climate action to solving social inequality. We know innovation is going to be critical to solving humanity's most pressing existential challenges. But when it comes to mining, this is not something we are very good at. And it's funny, the vast majority of executives will list innovation as a top priority and yet admit that they don't feel well-equipped. So I feel like we're one of these industries that really wants to be doing more, but we don't have much of an innovation culture. Now, as someone with expertise in this area who also gets mining, I'd like to ask you to start with telling me why you think this is the state of affairs in the mining industry. It's an interesting question, Liz, and I think the result is you know, in the late 80s, the mining industry, because of low prices, essentially gutted a lot of its innovation capability, as well as the innovation capability of its uh, supply base, and has never really recovered, either with in terms of capability. And one of the things I've observed is this kind of persistent underinvestment in innovation. So our research and the research of other firms shows mining is probably investing less than half of 1% on a good day in innovation. The next industry being manufacturing at one and a half, two percent Oil and gas is around 3%. So when you persistently underinvest in innovation, that reduces capability, does not signal the market well. So I think that causes just kind of this uh, underperforming in the innovation area and not kind of getting the gains that could be appreciated from a lot of the technology innovation of the last 10, 15 years. It's insightful. It makes a lot of sense. I didn't know that piece of history, actually. I remember that Natural Resources Canada also did this report, I think four years ago now, and it spoke a lot about this challenge of ecosystems and lack of collaboration. And specifically, it was highlighting the opaque legacy and the culture in the mining industry and the way we're quite closed. 
as being major issues because essentially we're missing out on cross-pollination of ideas, both within the industry uh, as well as between industry and other ecosystems out there in the world. So basically, if we aren't publicizing our pain points, then we're missing the opportunities on a lot of different levels, which I found really interesting. But of course, it's not all bad. No. Uh, so next thing I want to ask you is what kind of innovation models you're seeing in mining that are working well? Because I think we do have quite a few really interesting examples. Yeah, no, and we do. And I, I always want to kind of emphasize this is not a zero sum game that we're starting from a clean sheet is there are good examples and we just need more of it. So uh, something I've seen are interesting. I mean, I think two mining companies that I think both, you know, package it, message it and execute on it well are Anglo-American, which I think is really the leader with its Future Smart Innovation Program, uh, which is a highly collaborative open model. Uh, where they do a lot of partnering. I've been very involved with that since the beginning. Uh, tech, I really like with their Race 21 Innovation Initiative. Uh, it's very focused. Uh, and particularly what these programs do when they well so well articulate is it really galvanizes the organization internally to be innovative, uh, but also sends a clear signal to potential partners that this is a strategic imperative for the company when they put it out there. Other ones that are interesting is, I think, Anaconda, which is a gold mining company in Northern Canada, a junior producer, uh, spun it, did some research uh, with its local university and its own work on leveraging oil and gas technology for in-situ drilling and processing, uh, which is kind of a low um, environmental footprint. And they spun out a company, actually, Novamera, which Crystal's actually invested in in the early stages. So this is just a one example of kind of a spin out of a technology, but more into a startup, traditional startup environment, which I think is really interesting. On the collaboration front, we're seeing um, Hydrogen Ford is an interesting one, which is kind of cross-industry, which I really like, which Anglo-American was one of the pioneers with Shell and some other companies. Uh, to really try and figure out, you know, the hydrogen challenges, if you like, to scale it. So I think we're seeing, you know, different companies and organizations collaborating, you know, in a broader ecosystem, uh, spin-outs of early stage. We just need to see more of it. These are kind of too isolated, in my view. Yeah, for sure. But I like that you also highlighted examples of larger companies and a smaller company, too, to show, you know, it can be happening anywhere. But of course, the pressure is on to be doing more um, and to do it with a less siloed lens. Which leads me to my next question. At the Development Partner Institute, you're involved in this neat multi-stakeholder roundtable with the Rockefeller Foundation. And I know you guys have representatives from across the mining value chain. So in that space, I figure you'll get to hear a lot of really interesting dialogue. Uh, so you want to share a little bit maybe about what you're hearing there? Absolutely, yeah. So this is a process we, uh, in partnership with Rockefeller Foundation that we started with a convening of our 25 leaders from the whole of value chain at the Bellagio Centre in November 2019. And we've been having an ongoing dialogue and it's really about responsible sourcing, Liz. Okay. And the companies that we have are really interesting. So the customer facing and we have people, the likes of BMW, General Motors, Microsoft, Tiffany, through to the fabricators like ArcelorMittal. Through to miners, we've got Rio, BHP, Anglo-American, Anglo-Gold. But more importantly, we've got the other stakeholders that aren't usually in the room. So we have Goldman Sachs, Bank of Montreal, Citibank, the faith community, and people representing Indigenous First Nations. And what we're hearing is just the convening and having people listen in a way where they are deepening their understanding and deepening the trust amongst all these stakeholders is really important. And what we're hearing is, first, is a demand from the downstream companies like BMW, for products that they want uh, in terms of its ESG performance. And they want full visibility all the way up the uh, value chain. And from investors, both debt and equity, that want higher levels of ESG performance. 
okay? And also an increasing awareness that the impact on Indigenous people needs to be better understood uh, as well by all participants. So it's really interesting and it's an ongoing process uh, that we're uh, managing. So yeah, really exciting. It speaks also to, you just made me think, not just technological innovation, which is generally where we jump to when we hear the word, but also social innovation, I think is something that the industry should probably be doing a lot more of. Yes, absolutely. All right, so sort of a subtopic, let's dig a little bit more into some of the reasons why it's hard to meet these expectations when it comes specifically to uh, innovation to get to solutions. I know that there's a strong link to the historical and the present state of finance in particular in the mining industry. It influences how the industry operates, it, how we are incentivized. Our behavior is largely a result of capital market structures and pressures. So for those on the line who maybe aren't so familiar with it, how would you summarize the state of mining finance today? And what are some of the challenges inherent in those structures that are actively stifling innovation? Yeah. So it's really interesting. So a quick, uh, I guess, Hitchhiker's Guide to um, Financing. So I put it in uh, several buckets, and then we'll talk specifically on venture. But I think, you know, the public markets, um, you know, particularly in Canada for junior miners, where companies list on the markets and raise capital, that's essentially pretty well dried up. So there's not a lot of available public equity now. So the second area is private equity. So examples of that would be like Appian Private Equity Fund and Resource Capital Partners, who actually invest in early stage mines, usually during you know, pre-operation, but post-construction. And they have quite high ESG barriers. So that's kind of the private equity bucket. And then we have the venture funds where, and there's growing private equity, I just want to say, in that. There's project finance from people like Equilibrium Capital that are seeking you know, high environmental performing projects. And I know they're focused on mining. They're on our board at DPI to specifically fund these projects. And they have several areas where they think they could help with mining, but that hasn't really taken off yet. And then finally, venture capital, which is really you know the engine of innovation in terms of early stage companies. And that's really in venture funds. Um, and for mining, that's in its very early days. Uh, and then finally, corporate venture capital is where the companies have their own venture funds directly and invest directly into companies. And their mining is probably resplendent is probably being the only industry, including heavy industries like um, steel making, chemicals, where the predominance of mining companies do not have either corporate venture funds or are active in the venture capital communities. I'm going to ask you about that specifically. It's an outlier. Yeah, yeah that's a really interesting one. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad that you moved a little bit into the venture space there because I actually wanted to ask you about that next. So I think that's a type of finance that we should be thinking a lot more about and you've got a ton of experience with. So how exactly can venture capital foster innovation in an industry like mining in such different ways from the kinds of financing and investment that we're so used to seeing? So I think, Liz, it starts with a fundamental belief uh, that you must have that a predominance of innovation, especially the transformative kind, comes from early stage companies. So if you have that as a fundamental belief, which is actually inherent in almost every other, well, actually is inherent in all other industries, then, you know, the fact that you know, we don't have many venture capital funds focused on mining. Um, there's you know, probably three, uh, which is just not sufficient. We have insufficient corporates involved with this. So, um, and the thing is that if you have a lot of reason, early stage companies can only become impactful to industry if one, once the research is done, that there's venture capital that helps fund the company to start and grow and takes it really through growth. So what happens in mining is because of this dearth of venture capital, is we have a lot of good ideas that are kind of stranded in research 
or small companies are stunted and kept as small companies because there just isn't the volume of venture capital to help get them through from the research stage to early stage to growth stage. And it's a, it's a well-proven model. Every industry has benefited from it. And I think mining is way behind the curve. But at the same time, that presents a big opportunity to kind of Absolutely. accelerate at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Can you maybe just explain how venture capital works in a way that's slightly different from what we're used to as well, just like in a sentence or two? Yeah, I mean, I think venture capital, I mean, the funds are very focused. So, for example, you know, Chrysalix were focused on certain thematic areas across heavy industry, fundamental in construction and mining. So the key is uh, venture capital is seeking early stage companies generally. This is early stage uh, where they can help fund and accelerate uh, the development from you know prototype lab level technology into early stage and then into further growth. So you know it's high risk capital and venture funds usually work on the model that one in every 10 investments will be successful. And then they have this concept of a game changer where, you know, you make, may make a 100x return on your investment. So the venture models, you know, I mean, the, the amount of venture capital is staggering in terms of both money under management and money invested. So it's a really, really important ingredient to innovation. The old high risk, high reward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for that. So I also wanted to ask, you mentioned in-house venture capital fund, and it's, it's interesting in most other industries including our oil and gas counterparts, have in-house corporate venture capital units. I, I read recently that 350 of the 500, Fortune 500 companies actually have in-house corporate venture units, but we never really see that in mining. What exactly do you think we're missing and what can we learn from other industries who do have that model? It's a good question. So, I mean, it gets back to this kind of belief system in startups and the value and then our ability to absorb them. So if you take oil and gas industry is actually a good example. Let's just take BP as an example. That's one of the better ones. But, you know, Shell, Equinor, Total, they've all got very vigorous venture funds. BP Ventures invests somewhere between 250 and $300 million a year. And even if you scale that by market cap or revenue, I mean, the mining industry doesn't even get close. And the way they use that is as a strategic tool, very focused around the high areas of strategic value you know, from an innovation perspective. And they use it as a you know, hand-in-glove mechanism for innovation, partnering, et cetera. And BP's worked a long time to what I call perfect this model of how ventures can be very uh, additive to the business. Um, and also it's a key... I think corporate venturing and investing in venture funds is a signal to the market, Liz, more importantly. It signals entrepreneurs that this is an industry that's interested in driving innovation in startups and then engaging with those startups to adopt the technology. In the absence of that, it's hard to convince because a lot of the key technologies mining needs to apply, artificial intelligence, robotics, come from what I call you know, kind of generic development soft technology companies. And mining is not an industry that's on their top 10 target lists. And the only way you get there is if you send signals to the market, and that's through venturing that you do that. So this is a really important kind of dynamic. And I'm not sure a lot of mining executives get how this works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and like, for example, if we think about sheer presence of the industry in Silicon Valley, which is in modern history, the world's innovation mecca. I mean, it's where it's where you learn what it is. It's how you figure out what it means for your industry. It's bizarre. We are pretty much the only major industry without some kind of permanent presence there. So I would suggest we're probably missing something by not being in the room, so to speak. Uh, what are you seeing in the venture capital world that we should be taking a note of? Oh, I think it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, 
Actually, I was staggered. So there's only two there's only two groups that uh, have a presence in Silicon Valley. So Sumitomo actually through their big venture arm in Silicon Valley, there's one person responsible for scouting for mining the mining sector, uh, and for, and there's no other mining anything. And yeah, Caterpillar Ventures obviously a small part of it focuses on mining, but not much. So for example, with they're part of Chrysalix and we invested in MindSense, which is a great technology for mining. And then BHP Ventures, which has just started up hired someone uh, who's based in the Seattle, but that's it. And and just, and Sumitomo has the right thing. They they understand what are the strategic drivers for their mining business. Um, and then the scout is literally doing what you do. Is they don't, Some of the value, the biggest value I always find is not actually in the investing itself. It's in the scouting and all the deal flow you see. So the scout's just seeing deals, hundreds of them a year, interesting technology. Some they invest in, some they don't, but they apply to the business. So um, you know, if you're not if you're not here, you're not in the game, and you can't uh, you can't do this remotely. Just it's a relationships game, and it's so fast and so dynamic. It's just it just can't be done remotely. And no industry, every industry's found that out. You know, the auto industry, chemicals, steel, they all have representation here. It's pretty profound. If you're not here, you're not in the game. No, nope. and the world is changing as fast as it is. <laughs> yes. Yep. Okay, so, well, then how can we signal to the world all the opportunities for innovation that we do have like to advance our most pressing sustainability goals? Like, the need, the opportunity is amazing, but the world doesn't know because we're not there. Yeah, so again, as I say, it's not a zero-sum game. So I'll pick on one great example, I think, in mining, which is AP Ventures, actually. So this was an internal Anglo-American venture fund. And I said, I uh, called it the Intel model, which was, we'll invest in anything that accelerates... Uh, the adoption of platinum. So you have big uh, areas of, for hydrogen. So they eventually spun out that venture unit uh, to AP Ventures uh, and attracted other investors. So that included the South African Pension Fund. And I think I, I think Mitsubishi and one other mining company has recently joined. So this is very focused. All mining organizations are the LPs. And it's focused on accelerating hydrogen development in other areas. So I think that's a good example. So we need more examples of that. I mean, I'd like to see the yeah you know, at least three quarters of the top ten mining companies having corporate venture units. Yeah, you know, there's four miners that are LPs and Chrysalix, but I, there just needs to be more of that um, to match the scale of the industry. So um, yeah, is there an element to sort of just circling back to that report that's still on my mind that I mentioned earlier? around the opaque culture of our industry and just how uncomfortable it is, one, to work together, and two, to be honest about our problems, about our pain points, about, I guess, perceived weaknesses. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think this is a good point that your know, mining is not, a great, is not a great industry for collaboration. Yeah. It's funny, I was just, I've just been attending the Energy Forward Conference, which is usually in Italy, so I've been watching it virtually, which is, brings together all the oil and gas leaders and ministers from around the world. And they lament how bad they are at collaboration with themselves. And they make the point that every oil executive makes the point at the CEO level that the challenges they face as an industry are beyond one company, beyond one industry, and we need to get better at collaborating with ourselves and other industries. You just don't hear that language in mining. You really don't. With some exceptions, always exceptions. And there's example. We, I mean, the, the magnitude of the challenges that we have as an industry I think requires far more collaboration within the industry and cross-industry collaboration. So Yeah, 100%. Well, what kind of organizational mechanisms do you think could promote more collaboration like that instead of the kind of self-interest that we see? Yeah, well, I think Hydrogen Forward is an interesting one. That's broad-based around hydrogen. 
Another interesting one is oil and gas industry created a consortium called OGCI, uh, which is a collection of, so they decided that carbon capture and reuse is a strategic interest to the entire industry. And then rather have entre- then, rather than have entrepreneurs and researchers and suppliers dealing with all the oil companies one-on-one, let's deal with one entity. So they funded this to the tune of a billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. And all the project finance behind it to accelerate the development of solutions for carbon capture, which are vital to the whole oil industry. So that's one example. So I would kind of encourage mining leaders to identify those areas of common interest. And then when can we, how can we financially pool our interests? Loose associations are not what I'm talking about. I mean, it has to be a funding, a funded vehicle. Uh, and we're working on a couple that are interesting that I can't talk about, but I, people are starting to realize this, but I, I, we just need to accelerate what we're doing and how we do it. Cool. Super. So to be creating those funding vehicles, presumably you need something for those vehicles to invest in. And it makes me think of this article that I read uh, last summer from Vinod Kosla. He's a big venture capitalist. Wrote this article. It was specific about the clean tech innovation that the world needs. And he wrote that it'll be coming from what he called instigator startups and entrepreneurs, not from inside any of the big companies in, say, the energy industry. Now, you have worked in clean tech venture capital, you have worked in mining, and you are a serial entrepreneur. So I wanted to ask you what you think about that. Does that resonate for mining as well? Can we do it within the big vehicles? Or do we need to be focusing on startups? And, and if so, how do we get there? Because there aren't a lot of mining startups. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll admit first that I'm very biased, okay, in this, okay. but I think that you know, 80 to 90% and innovation, if you think about it, is kind of divided into three, but the real transformational innovation that's going to do game changes for the industry, I think, is the world of emerged startup companies. It really is. But big companies have a vital role to play in partnering and providing access to IP, knowledge, and other capabilities. But they, you know, I think we've got to stop trying to think we can do this because most other industries, you know, whether it's the healthcare industry or oil and gas industry, recognize most of the transformation comes from startups. So two examples that I have, or three actually. So, uh, so Lilac Solutions, which is a ion-based extraction process for uh, lithium. So I sit on their advisory board, but yeah, they got invested in by Breakthrough Ventures, which is the Bill Gates billion dollar you know, clean energy or clean tech fund. And they're doing some great partnerships with kind of innovative models for lithium. So that's a great example. I mean, that process would have never been invented in a lithium company. It just wouldn't have happened. And either, and it, it's not a criticism, it just is what it is. And so it needs to be accepted. Uh, another one is kind of what I, I'm a big believer in swarm mining, which is, you know, the future of mining is actually, the next big is actually small, you know, sort of the uh, mimicking ants. So it's actually a great technology, which is a, a company spun out of JPL which is working with a couple of mining companies, which is good, and are now at the pilot stage. So, so that's an example of where, where mining companies do need to provide the support to startups. Yeah. So again, and as you mentioned, it's, an, it's about building ecosystems, uh, which is an art form, by the way. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, if it's startups that we need, we aren't starting from nothing. We have junior explorers that prove we have no shortage of entrepreneurial spirit. So the question for me is, how do we leverage that spirit to foster these vibrant ecosystems where we get those, quote, instigator startups that we require so that we can address these big innovation challenges so that we can work more quickly towards a more sustainable tomorrow. Yeah. So I have three things for that. So one of, we've talked a lot about funding. If there's not availability of funding for these companies, 
then they'll eventually either wither on the vine or go to other markets where funding is available. Okay, so it's very hard to say, I'm a startup, I'm focused on mining. And usually most startups would probably, you know, when I was running startups, we would pitch to 20, 30 VCs before you got to, there's not 20, 30 VCs that are focused on mining. I mean, I'd pitch to three, that's just not good odds. That's one. Yeah, what door do you even knock on? Yeah, that's right. You know, and then, and, and also it takes away negotiating. You know, it's kind of the power game. Two is different engagement model. The mining industry needs to shift more thoughtfully away from a procurement, purely procurement model to a much more partnering engaged model. So BHP with their new chief commercial officer are doing, I think, making some really good strides about changing their mindset towards much more of a partnering, innovative model. So I think that's good. So we're seeing that. And then finally, I would say fit for purpose process internally. So one investment banker said to me, mining industry is you know, generally most mining companies, bureaucracy and governance is frankly stifling. So they need to have fit for purpose processes where you know, the ability of startups to work closely with miners and implement needs to be different from you know, the process I have for a caterpillar, for example. It just has to be. So, so Peter, when you think about the future of innovation in the mining industry, what are you most afraid of and what really excites you? Actually, a couple of things, two things probably scare me a little. One is, yeah, I call it boom bust, is that, you know, the commodity prices are pretty healthy right now, you know, for a lot of the commodities, you know, gold, copper, iron ore. And I worry that that laissez of fun, money, cash flow and profits sh- shunts innovation to the side of the desk again, just when it appeared to be kind of emerging out of this kind of long winter. So I worry about that. And I also worry about the other one, which is the funding, which I I just don't. And I, this surprises me because mining companies do exploration, uh, but they just won't put the right level of funding towards innovation, towards venturing, towards startups. And so we'll be locked in this loop of being isolated from a lot of wonderful technology. Because you look at the productivity improvements that other industries have enjoyed and mining hasn't, it's quite staggering. Uh, and we're under pressure on water, emissions, a lot of areas. So I think it's really going to Well, and it require. scares me because our low-carbon future doesn't exist without a lot more mining. Yes. We can't really afford that. Yeah. So, so what I'm excited about is I think I see enough seedlings planted and enough initiatives to say that there is hope. So, so I hope we take these as um, catalysts for doing more. Um, across a broader segment of the industry. And also, I think the other thing about the industry needs to recognise about optionality, which again is a key trait of exploration, is that all this is not the realm of any one organisation or entity, and you need to be betting on multiple threads of activity uh, to get to the outcomes. You're just investing in one organisation, one thing, and say, that's the game I'm going to play, that doesn't work either. So a question for maybe some of our younger audience members. What advice would you give someone wanting to position their career paths at a similar nexus to yours? I mean, we're talking about some pretty cool stuff today. Yeah, thanks, Liz. I don't think there's any one path, actually. When you said you were going to ask that question, I was like, oh, that's an interesting one. So I would say there's no (laughs) one path because the path I – so I think I'm in my fourth career now. And the path I took was, you know, I did traditional, you know, I did an accounting degree. I hated accounting. And then I got into software when the enterprise software industry was just starting, et cetera. But the philosophy I always followed was my mother. And my mother was a Holocaust survivor. So she had always some profound things to say. But she always said, Peter, when a door opens, walk through it. 
And because too many, and I, and I, it's only in later life I understood what she meant was that, you know, we overanalyze the opportunities that present to us and sometimes we don't take them. And sometimes the door that presents itself is not the right door, but the right door is behind that door. So you've got to be a risk taker. Um, and another one is actually, so that's my path, but another path could be, you know, um, there's a, a company in the autonomy space called Lumina. And the reason I do this is because the founder of that company went to the same high school as my daughter's. He's 23, a billionaire now. He invented his product and set up his company in 10th grade when he was in science class at their school. Uh, and then his first year at Stanford, I believe, when Peter Thiel, who's a, a, one of the most successful venture capitalists ever, uh, approached him and said, and Peter Thiel has a dropout scholarship. <clears throat> so it's actually drop out of school and become an entrepreneur. So uh, <laughs> he dropped out of Stanford in first year to focus on Luminar. And it just did a reverse listing for a SPAC. And it's considered wow. the, probably the most leading LiDAR technology ever. So that's a different path, you know, very non-traditional. So, but I think- It's that, good to have unconventional paths. Yeah, I think the key though is mindset and a, and a willingness to take risk. You know, so I, I think that's, um, and that's why you find immigrants last point, are a very high proportion of startups because they say the act of immigration is the highest risk uh, any human being can undertake. So you self-select. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I remember my economics professor always used to say how important immigration was for simulating economy. I hadn't thought specifically about that element, though. It makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah. Okay, so Peter, you know that the show is called Prospecting Purpose. Uh, so I, I have to ask you, what does purpose mean to you for our industry in regards to, you know, using innovation to solve the world's sustainability innovation challenges? What is mining's role in crafting a more sustainable and socially just future? Okay, I think it's a great question. And it's, and it's the at the heart of the Development Partner Institute, Liz. So there's two things. I'll mention what DPI thinks about. As, as the mission uh, and purpose of the industry. But I think also I was listening to the CEO of Woodside Petroleum talk yesterday and I'll give you his thought as well. So I think the purpose of the industry obviously is it has a vital role to play in the future of the world, especially around electrification. But I think the industry needs to be moved beyond we're running a mine to being one where we become a true development partner, where we become a catalyst for prosperity, uh, prosperity in the communities that surround a mine and then move forward into the regions, countries, and beyond into the economies that we're providing vital materials to. So I think that's a fundamentally different mindset. And I was talking to a private investment banker, private equity guy today, and uh, one of the vehicles they talked about that's investing in mining is we're not building a mine, we're building a community, which is a pretty different mindset. So yeah, and that's kind of the essence of being a development partner. Uh, and the second one is the Woodside CEO said, and, and Woodside, for those people that don't know, uh, one of the world's largest uh, LNG providers uh, based out of Australia. And Peter said that, you know, we need to move beyond <clears throat> being a, a natural gas extractor, just you know, put it on a ship, liquefied, send it out, and we're done, to actually providing products people want, not what they need. Because he said, if you provide products that they absolutely need, they'll look to replace them. Uh, and he said, we need to do a much better job in making our product uh, meet the expectations of our customers around emissions, societal demands, et cetera. So, and I think those two are fundamental mindset shifts. And I'd be excited if the industry, and I see some of that uh, with you know, Mike Henry, uh, Mark Udafani, Don Lindsay, 
have in varying degrees adopted those stances, but I think as an industry, we should adopt both those, which is A, we're our true development partner in growing prosperity, and we provide the products that people want, not necessarily what they need. Well, that's all for today's episode. This is Liz Friel on Prospecting Purpose. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, Peter, for being my co-host today. Liz, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. If you're looking to connect with Peter or learn more about his work, you can reach him via any of the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just, and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose?